Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, October 6th, 2011. Hopefully all you Apple junkies out there are finding the will to live. I'm an Apple junkie. I was very sad to hear of the death of Steve Jobs. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There's no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and sadly, they're coming from uh, men who are supposedly, uh, well, evangelical pastors. The problem is, is that uh, many evangelical pastors have abandoned, uh, just flat out abandoned, uh, the uh, the right handling of God's word and a clear and clarion proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. As a result of it, uh, they've created a well, a cotton candy, uh, uh, self help type religion that's very appealing to the masses. That will ultimately, uh, well. Make a difference in the long run, or the short run in people's lives. You know, maybe improve things for them. Maybe they'll get better, but in the end, it uh, it may even send them to hell. And uh, and so it's a, a, it's like a complete shaking down of the confidence that we ought to have in the very foolish, by the world standards, uh, gospel that we've been given to proclaim. As a result of it, there's guys out there who are making huge churches, who are literally, well, you can't even call them a church, though. They're, they're, they have buildings that have the word church somehow associated with it. Uh, they have uh, huge attendance figures, growing attendance figures. But uh, when you sit down and you analyze what's going on and what's being said and what's being taught, in the name of Jesus Christ, you realize, whoa, there's something wrong here. Uh, this is not the biblical gospel. This is not sound doctrine. This sounds more like what we heard the Apostle Paul uh, warning the church about, about in the last days it will pe- people will gather to themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. Basically abandoning a sound doctrine and instead will gather for themselves guys who will basically teach them myths. And so 
Yeah, to put it in its most blunt format, it's a myth that the Christian message is all about you having your best life now. It that's or that somehow um we or you know the the pastors who found a way to strip away the fruits of the Holy Spirit and turn them into the whiffums of the uh, of the Christian sales pitch. Do you want a uh, a more balanced life? Do you want to be successful here in the in the here and now, do you want God's favor? Well, good news. I mean, we can help you have an exciting sex life. We can help you have better behaved children, to feel more satisfied with your work environment, to discover your God-given ginormous purpose in life. We're going to give you influence, affluence, and everything you can possibly imagine, and all you need to do is apply these super simple principles, and then blammo, this, these things will happen to you. And by the way, one of those principles is, oh yeah, you got to tithe off of the gross, the very, 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 very first 10%, otherwise your money's cursed, and your life will be trashed. <laughs> it's, oh man, it's, you know, it's, it's... it's it would be funny if it wasn't so sad. I mean, it's it's a very, very serious problem that we have going on here. And over and again, what's very interesting to watch these seeker-driven guys do, especially you know, the top brass in the leadership, is uh, they will never, ever, ever acknowledge or deal with the core criticism that any critic is is uh, launching is basically given to them and it doesn't matter if the person is a blogger or a well-respected phd in theology they will never address the substance of a criticism ever there's no such thing as a godly critic in fact uh for the those who uh who've taken up uh you know Going to the internet and you know putting together a blog, saying, "Wait a second, what this pastor said doesn't square with this passage of scripture. That's not sound doctrine. That's false teaching." And the the standard answer for the uh, for the person who's doing that, oh, that person's a Pharisee. Or my favorite is is that, oh yeah, they're a blogger. We all know about bloggers. You know, bloggers. Yeah, these are people who don't have a life. These are people who are just malcontents. Uh, they 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 really live in their mom's basement. They're probably n- naked on a beanbag eating Cheetos, you know, with their uh, with their laptop, you know, and they've got the keyboard all covered in that gross, you know, yellowish Cheetos residue. And uh, these are these are people who, um, you know, they're kind of like the Unabomber, or you know, they, or they live in cabins in Montana. And uh, they, they obviously are suffering from cabin fever. Uh, you know, they're they're akin to snipers. They they're they're just terrorists. You'll notice that uh, all of that language, all of that uh, that that response is it's an ad hominem argument. They don't address the substance of the criticism. Instead, uh, the the criticism basically amounts to. Oh yeah, they're a blogger, and we all know that bloggers are boogerheads. And so boogerheads don't ever have anything to contribute ever to the kingdom of God or whatever. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. So anyway, we I provide the uh, I provide the counter commentary, and you'll notice one of the things um, that, that I really spend a lot of time doing is doing long form 
uh, quotes and things like that, so that I uh, that I I do what I can to avoid um, creating a straw man that I'm tar- uh, that I that I'm beating up. Yeah, that's not a good idea. Uh, so you know, the idea is you want to fairly re- represent somebody's position, and I find the easiest way to do that is let them make it. So um, anyway, so we provide the uh, the uh, the boogerhead comments, uh, commentary, and critiques, and of course. Everybody knows that I'm holed up in a bunker somewhere in uh, in northern Montana, right on the Canadian border, and uh, and that I'm currently uh, doing radio while in the buff on a beanbag eating Cheetos. Not really, but <laughs> if you listen to the way they they, you know, they they never respond to any of the substance of what uh, of my critiques ever ever, but they're always quick to say, "Oh, he's a Pharisee. He's a blogger. He's a." malcontent he's not really doing anything constructive yeah yeah yeah. okay all right let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of fighting for the faith okay so um yeah we we've got a herald camping update you know here it is it's october 6th and uh, i don't know if you remember but um i mean we are what 14 15 days away now from the end of the world, according to Harold Camping. I mean, this it's all over. This is it. Uh, you know, the second part of his failed pro- prophecy regarding the rapture and the end of the world, uh, that, that other shoe's about to drop. And um, my fear for Harold Camping is, is that if that guy does not repent, I mean, uh, the, the stress of his last failed uh, prediction regarding the end of the world, put him, put him in a nursing home, and he got out of the nursing home in June and was actually able to make it, uh, you know, some kind of a statement. But uh, we'll be reading a story about that. I've got a Pamela Carter from uh, update from the uh, Extreme Prophetic Gang. Uh, I don't know if you saw Joel Osteen and his wife Victoria on uh, Piers Morgan's program last night, but uh, boy, Piers Morgan said something in that interview that just <laughs> wow. I mean, talk about a concise way of of. Um, putting the problem uh, and and he wasn't trying to put the problem as a problem he really thought that was a solution but uh, we'll take a look at that Uh, I might look at uh, some of the responses out there regarding uh, Steve Jobs and his uh, and yeah his uh, succumbing to cancer uh, pancreatic cancer yesterday Um, uh, Paul McCain of uh, Concordia Publishing House has a fine fine Lutheran perspective on this which I think is interesting and uh you know and worth at least considering a lot of po- folks don't know that uh, Steve Jobs when he was a young lad was actually catechized in a uh, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod congregation and uh and so uh, he you know as a young guy he was well at least exposed to the means of grace I and mean, he heard the gospel he knew what the gospel was uh you know, if he was properly catechized, and that means at the end of that, that uh, he he took the Lord's Supper and other things. And, uh, of course, CNN is reporting that, you know, he later converted to Buddhism. And so the question is, is uh, where did he end up? What happened? Well, you know, how, do we, how are we as Christians to discuss these things? The reality is, is that um, uh, we weren't there for the last few months of his life, and uh, no one that I know of has really interviewed him uh, as he as he was approaching the end of his life, and Pastor McCain uh, kind of brings up an important point uh, in his blog post that's worth passing along. And uh, time permitting, I might even take a look at Albert Muller's 
uh, post that he put up today. And then we're going to look at uh, real quickly a, uh, a a thing that went up at the um, pastors.com website. This is the uh, website run by Saddlebacks and uh, their purpose-driven ministry toolbox. Uh, literally, the, it's a thing on centering prayer. And I'm going to read that to you and basically ask the question, where did this come from? And then in our sermon review in hour number two, we're going to be taking a listen to a sermon from a church we've never reviewed a sermon from before. Uh, But if you've been following me on Facebook and Twitter, uh, then you're aware that I've been taking shots at the concept of vision casting. And uh, and for good reason, very, very good reason, because the the way this... uh, the the way this concept has played out in the seeker driven leadership ranks i mean it literally it's it's basically claiming for the pastor an individual specific prophetic vision for how to do uh, how to do church and um that prophetic vision you know they don't call it a prophetic vision they call it you know, receiving the vision or and casting the vision um but what it truly is is it's it's literally prophecy and as a result of it 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 has to be tested against the biblical test for a prophet. Any any pastor who's claiming to receive specific visions from God as to how to do X, Y, or Z, that, that pastor is tacitly basically claiming for himself prophetic, uh, you know, basically prophetic gifts. The ability to receive, uh, thus saith the Lord, directly from God. So we're going to be reviewing a sermon uh, that was preached this last Sunday at Crossroads uh, Christian Church in Corona, California. And um, the name of the uh, sermon is Asah Shema. And this sermon is a vision casting sermon. And there's so many things wrong with this. I mean, there's like, uh, there, I could literally put this into several different types of categories. I could say, we're going to cover it from this angle and then do the whole sermon review from that angle. I could say, we're going to cover it from another angle and then replay the sermon and cover it from that angle. It, there's so many different ways in which this sermon goes wrong that it's going to be, I mean, literally almost impossible for me to catch everything. And instead, I'm going to try to highlight certain things. And uh, and those of you who are listeners, uh, you know, if, if you catch other things, believe me when I tell you, I I do not claim the ability to catch everything on this sermon because it's all over the map. It's frighteningly bad. But an example of a vision casting sermon that I that I wanted to put into the mix there. So uh, with that, uh, we are going to dive into the program proper. That's great. It starts with an earthquake, birds and snakes, an airplane. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. I have a hurricane. Listen to yourself. Turn world to its own needs. Now, normally we save this music for uh, Harold Camp, uh, not Harold Camping, uh, William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. And um, Casio player extraordinaire. But uh, today we, we're going to have to do double duty with the song and uh, use it for our hill camping update. Right? It's the end of the world as we know it. Of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. 
I feel fine. All right, enough of that. Okay, so uh, Harold Camping is back in the news. The uh, Christian Post has uh, posted a, well, a Harold Camping update, of all things, and uh, that's what the headline reads, Harold Camping Update. Rapture will probably finish in October 21st. Well, it didn't even start. I mean, don't you remember the May 21st thing? Like, like it didn't happen, like, at all. Anyway, uh, so uh, this is by Ray Downs of the uh, of the Christian Post. He writes, Harold Camping, the Christian broadcaster who boldly announced that the world would end on May 21st, only later to say that he was flabbergasted when the rapture did not occur, is now telling everyone to get ready for the real rapture, which is set to occur on October 21st, probably. Probably? Probably? I thought he was absolutely 100% firmly sure that this was definitely going to happen. I, those were his words back um, in the wake of the failed uh, May 21st rapture prediction. Anyway, sometime after being released from a nursing home in June after suffering a stroke, Camping released an audio message on Family Radio's website saying, We would have not been able to be used by God to bring about the tremendous event that occurred on May 21st of this year, which probably will be finished out on October 21st that's coming very shortly. That looks like it will be the final end of everything. Um, yeah, you know, I I think this the just the stress of two failed end of the world predictions in one year is going to be the end of Harold Camping. I think it's going to end up putting him in a grave. Anyway, Camping not sounding quite as strong in his voice or as confident about his rapture prediction in his audio message expressed. Gratitude for prayers from supporters. The California Bible teacher who confessed that he has restudied his predictions said in the recording that the rapture will be quick and quiet. Probably there will be no pain suffered by anyone because of the rebellion against God, Camping said. He added, this is very comforting to all of us because we all have children, we all have loved ones that are dear to us, that we know are not saved, and yet we know that they'll quietly die. As for the true believers, like those who have been praying for his recovery, Camping said in the message that believers will quietly receive the new heaven and the new earth. Quote, I really am beginning to think, as I restudied these matters, that there's going to be no big display of any kind. The end is going to come very, very quietly. Probably within the next month, it will happen, that is, by October 21st, he said. Now, the latest announcement set off quite a firestorm on face on the Facebook page about camping and his predictions, where people took to mocking the minister, calling him a fake, a false prophet, and more. Uh, one Facebooker decided to take camping to task, quote, the more this camping character opens his mouth and the more the more stupid that he sounds. Alice Carey said he needs to give up the prophecy business and find something else to worry about, like feeding the hungry or working with abused animals. Uh, Jason Leary took to took the opportunity to rant against the media-savvy ministers who are known for gimmicks and controversy and tell people that they should instead follow the ways of Jesus. Folks, the choice is clear, Leary wrote. Are you going to follow fundamentalist media twits, or are you going to follow instead the carpenter rabbi from Galilee? I vote for following the carpenter rabbi from Galilee. 
Justin Vaught compared camping to the infamous Westboro Baptist Church. I, I love the shameless rhetoric from this guy. Always puts a smile on my face. Very entertaining, he wrote. Although I don't find him anywhere near as ignorant as the God hates, um, well, that group. Anyway, still, the world would be a better place without both, he added. Kevin Lynch was blunt in his reaction to camping, saying, Harold, I think God is saying stop. However, not everyone was so quick to ridicule the radio minister. Some were sympathetic toward camping. A co-worker hit on the nose in May, Huskins wrote. This is coming from a man that is most likely a devout Christian that is scared of dying in a painful way, and he has convinced himself this is a more painless way to go to heaven. When I thought about it like that, I got more sympath- a more sympathetic view of camping. Camping, a trained civil engineer who started the family radio network in, 50, in 1958, has been wrong about the end of the world date twice before. In 1992, he predicted the world would end in 1994 and even wrote a book aptly titled 1994. Although Christians hold conflicting views about the uh, how the world will come to an end, the accepted theological view is that the Bible does not offer clues as to the exact day or date of Jesus Christ's return as camping continues to purport. Family Radio released a statement on September 20th informing visitors that camping had improved substantially and was being cared for at home by his wife. Uh, this latest audio message was likely published sometime afterward. Anyway, so there you go. Camping back in the news, and um, man, he needs to repent. He needs to repent. I don't think he physically can survive another failed end-of-the-world uh, prediction. So just absolutely breathtakingly bad, bad, bad. I feel very sorry for him. Deception of this kind is... <sighs> it, it, it gets to the point of self-deception. He's hardened his own heart against the truth. Talk about hardened hearts. All right, moving along to the Patricia King gang... Okay, so we've got a Pamela Carter update. Pamela Carter has her own um, channel um, there at uh, ExtremeProphetic.com. And, boy, this was an interesting one, to say the least. The name of it is Your Financial Breakthrough. Your Financial Breakthrough. One of the reasons I want y'all to hear it is because what's interesting is is that the litany of of twisted Bible passages and bad uh, bad exegesis that Pamela spews here. I've heard from, well, let's just say prominent, prominent uh, evangelical authors and popular pastors. So it's a, it's a little bit easier to uh, detect the the error of these uh, this Bible twisting when you hear it in the mouth of Pamela Carter as opposed to a multi-million dollar book-selling um, pastor. So, yeah, here's uh, Pamela Carter, and, and the name of the video is Your Financial Breakthrough. I'm Pamela Carter, and I'd like to talk to you today about your financial breakthrough. And my husband and I went through quite a downturn in the last three or four years where everything collapsed. Our home, I mean, was turned upside down by all the, the economic collapse in the nation of the financial institutions, the housing market, and we were kind of caught in that web. 
Well, what the Lord began to teach us is that we needed to come out of the world system of finances and come into the kingdom of God finances. And that Okay, now, just right off the bat, I mean, just... I mean, like, just going, what? The kingdom of what? God? So we got to come out of the kingdom of the world finances and come into the kingdom of God finances. Well, here's the deal. When you're interpreting the scripture, when you're you're reading scripture, you know, okay, in order for us to have a clear doctrine on something, the Bible actually has to teach it clearly for it. You know, so that means if there's really, truly, a biblical concept known as kingdom of god finances okay or the you know the financial i don't know what do you even call it um the 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 financial system of the kingdom of god um then the bible either has to teach it clearly by name or clearly by concept and uh, what i mean by that is this is that uh, you know one of the things i've been pointing out on facebook and twitter is that uh, is that vision casting is not taught in the Bible. Now, a couple of people have come out of the woodworks and t- tried to challenge me regarding this, and they say, well, the, well the, the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. Now, this this is absolutely true, and it shouldn't, shouldn't bother you, though. Uh, it's absolutely true that the word Trinity nowhere appears in the Bible. Now, notice I said that the Bible nowhere teaches vision casting. I didn't say the the phrase itself doesn't appear in the Bible. Now, it's true that if you were to do a word search for the phrase vision casting, you'll not find anything in the scripture regarding that. Now, if the if vision casting were truly a biblical concept, like the doctrine of the Trinity. So coming back to the doctrine of the Trinity, nowhere in the Bible does the word Trinity show up. It doesn't appear in a single passage, all the way from the book of Genesis, even through the book of Maps. Nowhere will you find a single passage in the Bible that uses the word Trinity. But don't despair, because Trinity is a term, it's a theological term, basically you coined, to encapsulate, and it's defined by how the Bible reveals, or what the Bible reveals regarding the nature of the Godhead, okay, or the nature of God. So the idea, the question then is, is the concept of the Trinity, one God, three persons, taught in Scripture? Answer, yes, clearly taught. Now, nowhere in the Bible does the term vision casting appear. Does that mean that that it's not biblical? Not not that doesn't make it non-biblical by itself. The question is is the concept itself the way the seeker-driven guys have defined it and are using it in practice? Does the Bible teach that as one of the duties and responsibilities of a pastor? Answer no. Vision casting is neither taught in name or in concept in the scriptures. And so that that's an important, important, important thing to keep in mind. So coming back to this, in order for a doctrine to be a true doctrine, you have to have it taught either clearly in name, and it, it, either in name and concept, or in concept. It has to be. It has to be one of those two. Uh, so that's the idea. Now, where in the Bible does it talk about kingdom, uh, the, the 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 financial system of the kingdom of God? Answer, 
It doesn't. This is neither taught in name or in concept. And what she's going to do here, this is interesting. What she's going to do here, she's going to bring passages to bear on this that have absolutely nothing to do with finances. Like zero to do. And and so she's going to rip these concepts out of context and put them under this brand new doctrinal category that she's created all by herself entitled the kingdom of god finances listen in that was a hard process and a hard lesson to learn but we are learning to walk with god in the kingdom and if we don't have the money we don't spend the money that's key number one for your financial breakthrough is stewardship you have to be a good steward use what's in your hand and yet still believe god for more Okay, uh, yeah. So, uh, King, uh, number one, you you got to be a good steward. Now, it's funny if you were to talk to Robert Morris, he'd say, "Oh no, oh, no." <laughs> Key number one, if you want your financial breakthroughs, you have to remove the curse that's on your money by tithing the very, 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 very first ten percent off the gross of your money in order to remove the curse from it. See, you can't have a financial breakthrough through until you remove the curse. It's interesting, Pamela didn't pick up on that. Step out on the water when God says to step out on the water. He wants you to do something. Well, as you step, God can only bless forward movement. Now, now, I'm point something out. So now she's making a, a reference to the apostle Peter and his walking on the water. So immediately the question comes up. If I were to go back into the Gospels and read the story of Peter walking on the water, is the theological conclusion that the Bible teaches regarding Peter's walking on the water, that God only blesses forward movement. Well, if that's the case, then don't you think that the Bible would say that? But the Bible doesn't say that. And the passage regarding Peter walking on the water doesn't say that. So she's making a reference to a biblical story making a theological conclusion about the story, and that theological conclusion is actually not taught in Scripture. Where in the Bible does it say that God only blesses forward movement? So you have to take that step of faith first. When Peter got out of the boat, he had to take that first step when Jesus said, he said, Jesus, is that you? He said, yes. He said, can I come to you? He said, yes. And he held out his hand. Well, Peter had to get out of the boat. So there are times when God is calling you, like for myself. He called me to make a multi-million dollar film. Called me uh, many years ago to start my own television production company. To do my own television uh, and... uh, Yeah, based upon the fact that you twist God's word so badly, I don't think it was God who called you to do anything of the sort. By the way, if you want to... uh, read the uh, story of uh, Peter walking on the water. Um, It's in Matthew chapter 14. Let me read it to you so that you can see what's going on in the passage. And you'll notice this has absolutely nothing to do with the so-called financial system of the kingdom of God. Nothing whatsoever to do. And the assertion that she made is, is that God only blesses forward movement. It's not taught there either. Now, immediately uh, he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. 
But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, so the wind was against them. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Command me to come to you. Now notice, Peter's not going to just pre assume that this is what's going to happen. He's waiting for the Lord to give him a command. So Jesus said to him, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Truly you are the Son of God. That's really the point of this story. Have you? I mean, seriously, have you ever told a joke to somebody and not told them the punchline? I mean, that, that doesn't make any sense. The whole purpose of telling a joke is getting to the punchline so that people will laugh. Okay? In similar ways, when you're reading the biblical text, um, there's a punchline to the story. There's a, there's something that is that the there's a reason why that particular vignette in the life of Jesus, in the life of the disciples, in the ministry of Jesus is told. There's a punchline. There's something that you're supposed to get. And so, I mean, it would be like you know, just simply saying, "Oh well, listen, Peter got out of the boat, and and God only blesses forward movement and all this kind of stuff." I mean, that's like telling a, a joke without the punchline. It's me like, you know, saying knock, knock, and you go, who's there? Don't you love knock, knock jokes? They are just the funniest things in the whole world. I think that knock, knock jokes make people laugh. You just asked me knock, knock. I said, yeah. And I said, who's there? And, yeah, huh, yeah, right, yeah. Knock, knock. Who's there? And you never get to the punchline. It doesn't make any sense. The punchline of this passage is at the tail end of the story. And those in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. The reason why Matthew included this particular story in his in his uh, biography of the life of Jesus, and he's an eyewitness to the life of Jesus, is for this punchline, that Jesus is the Son of God, and they worshipped him as God. This is big, this is important stuff. Okay, about Jesus. But notice, nowhere in the text does it say here, God only blesses forward motion. And nothing in here about um, the, the story somehow being about kingdom finances. We continue, though. Independent films. Well, God, we had to take a step of faith. But he didn't tell us to go borrow the money. He told us that he would come and to use what was in our hand, like the boy with the, with the five loaves and two fish, he gave that to Jesus, and then Jesus gave it to the disciples, and as they broke the bread, as they broke it, it became multiplied. Okay, now this is the same concept that uh, Robert Morris teaches, okay, and he's a word-faith heretic. And it's important to note the people in the extreme prophetic camp are theologically related to, they're, they're cousins, if not flat-out brothers and sisters, to guys like Robert Morris. It just so happens that Matthew chapter 
14 also records for us the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Let me read the story to you and see if what she's saying is actually in the text. No, she's just referencing the story so you, so that you can go, oh, yeah, I remember that story. And then she's telling you something about the story without actually reading it. Well, I would put it into your basically say to you all, um, the text doesn't say that the bread multiplied. Well, let me read the story. <clears throat> Matthew 14. Starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, well, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said to, and he said, bring them here to me. He ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They took up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over, and those who ate were five thousand men besides women and children. Notice, the text says who broke the loaves. Was it the disciples, or was it Jesus? Let me read it. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down, Jesus, on the grass And taking the five loaves and two fishes, he, Jesus, looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he, Jesus, broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. Who who multiplied those loaves and fishes? Well, according to the biblical text of the feeding of the 5,000, it was Jesus, not the disciples. And yet, Pamela Carter and Robert Morris flat out contradict this and make it sound like the loaves and fishes didn't multiply until the disciples broke them. Let me back this up so you can hear her saying it. Here we go. Disciples, and as they broke the bread, as they broke it, it became multiplied. Well, kind of the way the Lord showed this to me one time. Now, that's not true. The text says that Jesus broke it, not the disciples. So who are you going to believe? Pamela Carter, Robert Morris, who teaches the same thing, other word faith heretics who say the same thing? Or are you going to believe the Bible? Matthew, the eyewitness, who was there and said that Jesus is the one who broke those loaves. I'm in a dream. Um, Actually, it was more of a vision. So God gave her a dream and a vision to explain how all of this took place. I was just sleeping, and all of a sudden, I woke up, and I was in the Spirit, and the Lord just showed me how he he did the miracle of multiplication. And it was astounding. I was just stunned when I saw it. He said, what I did is I didn't actually multiply, but when it was put in my hands, what I did was I took it, I took that bread and I took those fish. As it was placed by faith into my hands, I took it out of time as you know it. 
Uh-huh, right, yeah. Really? Wow. What does that even mean? And I just began to give, and it multiplied because it was in the eternal realm. It became whatever God wanted it to be. Uh-huh, really? This, Jesus told you that, really? Okay. Which was to feed the 5,000, whatever the need was. As we give it to the Lord, what we give, we, we think our gifts, our talents, our finances are small. But when you put that, what you have, into God's hands, through tithes, through offerings, God will take that little bit and multiply it through your faith and through your declarations of faith. Yeah, you'll notice that neither the story of Peter walking on the water, the feeding of the 5,000 have anything to do with finances at all. And then on top of it, she's added to this little uh, Bible teaching of hers a, a vision she claims directly to have had a conversation with Jesus, and Jesus explained to her how he performed the miracle. None of this is biblical. None of this is actually sound or solid. And here's the interesting thing. These same false, hermeneutical, bad, exegetical examples are not just taught by Pamela Carter, but like I have said earlier, by major prominent uh, evangelical pastors and authors. It's uh, much easier to spot when she's doing it. So in this time of economic crisis in our nation and in the nations of the world, we are not going to be able to go to the bank or go to the credit cards. We're going to have to trust God day by day, step by step. It Didn't Jesus tell us to pray, give us this day our daily bread? Yes, he did. Well, that was, that was what we had need of for that particular moment in time. Why are you speaking about it like in the past tense? Or that particular project. Perhaps you have big dreams. Well, just use what's in your hand. Be a good, faithful steward over your finances. Pray over every decision you make financially. Get rid of your credit cards. Get out of debt. And then begin to trust God as you take those steps of faith. And do you know that in the last three or four years, God has blessed my husband and I beyond our wildest imaginations with new because you you've applied the principle of multiplication and you've had your financial breakthrough see you too can have your financial breakthrough just apply the simple steps that you've learned in her bible twisting techniques taken from the feeding of the 5,000 and peter's walking on the water notice that the personal testimony just apparently is, is designed to add even more credibility to her twisting of the biblical text Anyway, we are long past time for our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Hey, do you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst, holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical store. Sound the alarm. You're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. Ah. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no. And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You have so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning, Chester. You have so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies, they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. Uh. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Man, I went really long. Warning, beware of money sermons when the illustrations, when you read them in context, have nothing to do with money. That's a bad sign. Like, really, really, really bad. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. In fact, if you don't already partner with us financially, we truly do need your financial support and uh, in order to keep doing what we do here. And uh, the way you can support us is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, what you're doing is signing up to automatically contribute on a monthly basis, $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. There's perks that go along with that. We're getting ready to announce our next set of perks. And, and the nice thing is I think we finally got all the publishing stuff in line, in order, and we're on track. 
And so we've got uh, we've got a, a book that we're going to be releasing. Actually, we've got a journal coming out this week. We've got a book coming out next week. Uh, and then we got a book in uh, if, in one book a month ebooks coming out uh, each sub- subsequent month month after month after month for the next few months so um I won't announce the titles just yet but uh, stay tuned uh, for more information on that and that's going to be for our crew members and of course if you would like to uh, you know ma- specify the amount that you would like to contribute the way you do that is click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send that to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 4 6038. All right, I'm going long today here. From uh, Paul McCain's blog entitled Cyber Brethren. You can find this at cyberbrethren.com. The headline reads I Sad, a Lutheran perspective on the death of Steve Jobs. Uh, one more thing. And so uh, yeah, this uh, I, I, we're not going to get to all of the stuff. I think uh, Mueller said something really good, and uh, but I like Paul McCain's thing because he's got a really good Lutheran way of looking at this. And what I mean by that is this, is that he, here's the deal. When we Lutherans are dealing with uh, people who've died and you're not exactly sure as to what it is that they believed at their death, um, what we want to look for, <laughs> the thing that we will scour for, are the means of grace. Did the person hear the gospel? Did the per- Was the person catechized? Was there a time in their life when they were attending church, where they were taking the Lord's Supper, where they were confessing their sins, hearing that their sins were forgiven? Um, you know, you're looking for things like that. Were they baptized? Stuff of that nature. And so, uh, and so the idea here is this, is that, uh, we can't look into somebody's heart. Usually you, you know, usually though, you, you, when somebody's truly brought to repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, their life bears fruit in keeping with that repentance. In the case of Steve Jobs, it's clear that he steered into some stuff that, um, is like the opposite of fruit that you would expect from somebody who is truly a Christian. Now, that being the case here, though, let's point to where we know he's heard the gospel, where we know uh, that the means of grace were offered them to him, and uh, understand then this, that, uh, that we don't know what was in his mind in the months and weeks and days and hours leading up to his death. As a result of it, we, don't, we can't say with certainty that... Um, that God's gospel, that the gospel wasn't the thing that God, that at the end, that his he, his heart wasn't fixed on. You, you understand what I'm saying? So that's the idea. So we, we, we want to look at the means of grace. Where can we, can we look to see where we know for sure he's heard God's word? And so um, Paul McCain of uh, Concordia Publishing House writes, he says, Steve Jobs was a man that God blessed with many gifts. Lutherans have a particularly keen focus on the doctrine of vocation. That is, that no matter who we are, God uses the gifts he gives to us to serve our neighbor and the world. God works through what we call the first article gifts. Uh, What does that mean? Well, Martin Luther, in his explanation of the first article of the Apostles' Creed, states, I believe in God the Father, the Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth and asserts that God has given each of us all of our abilities and our talents, everything we are, everything we have is a gift from God to be used to serve others. This is true of every human being. 
Steve Jobs was gifted with many of these first article blessings. And it is through the gifts that God gives to all men that he blesses the world with tools and technologies that help us. Steve Jobs was a person that God chose to be used to give us many of these wonderful tools. Tools now being used to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world in ways that we could hardly have even dreamed of just 30 or even 20 years ago. How we use those tools is the key. Now, unlike some of my fellow Lutherans and other Christians who felt the need at Jobs' passing to begin making pronouncements about his eternal destiny, I'm not going to rush to judgment. I can't help but recall Abraham Lincoln's quip, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than open up your mouth and, well, remove all doubts. We can learn from Steve Jobs' errors and mistakes in life. Of course, Of course, and we should, but every bit as much we must learn from our own. But we, but must we, on the news of his passing, be so quick to condemn him and focus only on his faults and failings? Answer, no. One more thing. Steve Jobs was baptized, and he was instructed in the Christian faith. So we can do a bit more than talk about common grace. We can also hope that God in his own ways, at times and places of his own choosing, may have worked in Steve's life at the last a remembrance of the gifts from Christ that he had received in his life. Unless you have been with a person in their last days, you have no idea what goes on in a person's heart and mind in the closing days and moments of life. So let us pray that God brought back to Steve the remembrance of what he had been taught as a young man in a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod confirmation class taught by my friend, the now deceased, Dr. Martin Taddy. So let's leave the judgment to God and leave the judgmentalism to those who have no hope. We who have hope in Christ know that for all mankind, the one who suffered, died, and rose again as the victor over our greatest enemies, sin, death, and the devil, has called us to be his very own. We hold out hope that in God's mercy, he once more reached into Steve Jobs' heart and mind at the end. And this is the one more thing that would be better than anything Steve ever announced and told us about. Great take. Great take. We don't know. We don't know. But we do know this. He was baptized. He was catechized. He did hear the gospel. He did receive the Lord's Supper, and he was instructed in the Christian faith by the Reverend Dr. Martin Taddy. What we don't know is whether or not God the Holy Spirit turned Steve Jobs' heart back to his catechism, back to the gospel, back to his baptism, back to the body and blood of Christ shed and broken for him for the forgiveness of his sins. We don't know. We don't know. But let us pray that that was the case. And in the meantime, pray for his family. Pray for his wife and his three children. Albert Muller, writing about Steve Jobs, writes, The death of Steve Jobs, the founder and iconic leader of Apple, is a signal moment in the lives of the digital generation which Jobs along with a very few other creative geniuses made possible. Few individuals of any historical epoch can claim to have changed 
the way so many people live their lives, do their work, and engage the products of the culture. Jobs was one of the most influential cultural creatives of all times. If that seems like an exaggeration, it is only because the products that Jobs and Apple brought into being have become so familiar that they appear as the furnishings of contemporary lives. The personal computer was not invented by Steve Jobs, but he saw the possibility of integrated systems that would allow personal creativity to blossom. He saw the products that customers did not even know that they needed and then released the products to the public, creating entire new markets and unleashing an explosion of, the, of worldwide technological creativity. The Apple products that Jobs personally introduced, including the iPod, the iPhone, and the iPad, defined a new era. There is now no going back. We are in the digital age to stay. But that world will, not, will now have to reckon with the absence of Steve Jobs. Born to unwed parents in 1955, Jobs was adopted by a couple in Northern California, the region later to be known as Silicon Valley. In one sense, Jobs was first defined by Silicon Valley. Later, he would return the favor by defining the region on his own terms. He, along with Stephen Wozniak, developed Apple as an idea and as a company. After dropping out of Reed College, Jobs joined Steve Wozniak in attending the meetings of the Homebrew Computer Club, which met at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center in Menlo Park, California. They began attending the meetings in 1975. In 1976, they began Apple with just over $1,000 of their own money. By 1981, the company was worth $600 million. In 1983, Apple joined the Fortune 500. Jobs had his share of technological failures or disappointments. Nevertheless, even in his years away from Apple, after losing control of the company, Jobs redefined entire industries. He developed Pixar into a digital movie powerhouse, among other things, returning to lead Apple in 1997 and later to become CEO again in 2000. The, result, the rest is history. Christians considering the life and death of Steve Jobs will do well to remember once again the power of an individual life. God has invested massive creative abilities in his human creatures. These are often used for good and sometimes deployed to evil ends. Steve Jobs devoted his life to a technological dream that he thought would empower humanity. He led creative teams that developed technological wonders and then he made them seemingly necessary for life in the digital age. Jobs' massive creative genius was matched to an almost unerring intuition of taste his design specification and attention to aesthetic detail are legendary. He reportedly held product designs such as the iPhone in his hand, closing his eyes as he ran his fingers over the surface, mandating changes to make to the product that were, to his mind, aesthetically perfect. He wants to find taste as trying to expose yourself to the best things humans have done and then trying to bring those things into what you are doing. His sense of taste and almost intuition to know in advance, what would be considered tasteful was remarkable. Nevertheless, taste is not a very substantial basis for a worldview, nor can technology save us. Steve Jobs lived a life that by secular standards will be considered legendary. Generations to come will be directly influenced by forces and products that he and his company brought to reality. He died a legend and one of the world's richest men. His personal life was far more complicated than his cool and reserved public image suggested. In his worldview, seemingly and vaguely Eastern in orientation, there was speculation that Jobs was a Buddhist. 
was very much a part of his hidden of the hidden Steve Jobs. In his 2005 commencement address at Stanford University, Jobs said, quote, Again, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever. This approach has never let me down, and it has made all the difference in my life. He told the graduating students to pursue their dreams and cited the Whole Earth Catalog, a work that symbolized the quirky culture of Jobs' Jobs's youth in Northern California. Stay hungry, stay foolish. In diet, he was a prescatarian, eating fish as the only meat. In public, he was the essence of cool, redefining the role of the CEO as the narrator, the public revealer of new technologies and products. In private, beginning in 2004, he was fighting against pancreatic cancer. In his Stanford address, Jobs told uh, of a saying he first heard as a 17-year-old, if you live each day as if it was your last, someday you'll most certainly be right. He stepped down as Apple CEO in August, telling his company's employees, I have always said that if there ever came a day when I could no longer meet my duties and expectations as Apple CEO, I would be the first to let you know. Unfortunately, that day has come. He exited the scene with grace, ensuring that the company he founded would endure when he was off the scene. There is much to learn from his life and his legacy. At the same time, Christians cannot leave the matter where the secular world will settle on Steve Jobs' legacy. The secular conversation will evade questions of eternal significance, but Christians cannot. As is the case with so many kings, rulers, inventors, leaders, and shapers of history, Christians can learn from Steve Jobs and even admire many of his gifts and contributions, yet we must also observe what is missing here. I am writing this essay on an Apple laptop computer. I'm listening to strands of Bach playing from my iPad via an airport express. My iPhone sits on my desk, downloading a new app from iTunes. Steve Jobs has invaded my life, my house, my office, my car, and my desktop, and I'm thankful for all of these technologies. But unerring taste, aesthetic achievement, and technological genius will not save the world. Christians know what the world does not. That the mother tending her child, the farmer planting his crops, the father protecting his family, the couple faithfully living out their marital vows, the factory worker laboring to support his family, and the preacher preparing to preach the word of God are all doing far more important work. We have to measure life by its eternal impact. Even as we are thankful for every individual who makes this world a better place, but don't expect eternal impact to be the main concern of the business pages. As a postscript, my son Christopher, age 19, is very much part of the digital generation, a digital native who never knew a time when the digital world was not. To him and his generation, Steve Jobs was the worker of wonders. Jobs, said Christopher, made computing cool and brought in the I generation. Texting me after the announcement of Steve Jobs' death, Christopher wanted to make sure I knew that this is a big deal. I got it, Christopher. Thanks. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian. 
or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time got a lot of new uh, churches we've been adding into our sermon review mix some some fresh voices if you would here we go The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Crossroads Christian Church in Corona, California. The name of the sermon is Asa Shema. And as I said earlier, there's so many things wrong with this, it's, I'm not going to catch it all. The pastor is a gentleman by the name of Chuck Booher. Chuck Booher. And this is supposedly a vision-casting sermon. This is one of the reasons why I picked it out. A listener posted a link to this on my Facebook wall, and... Um, Let's just say I was frustrated. Now, this is kind of a long sermon, and I'll try to get through all of it. Um, if I end up interrupting too much, then I reserve the right to, if you want to hear the end of it, visit their website. By the way, you can find their website at crossroadschurch.com. Crossroadschurch.com. 
So without any further ado, let's dive into this. Let me kill the music here. That's right. I'm a music murderer. So here is uh, Chuck Booher and uh, a vision casting sermon entitled Asashima. Here we go. Okay, now I'm playing the music here, and you notice that it starts off with the all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is taken from the uh, the book of Deuteronomy. Law or gospel, and yes, it does matter. Law or gospel? Law. Okay. This is a this, where the sermon f- fundamentally goes wrong at its theological core is it doesn't understand the proper distinction of law and gospel. It doesn't understand what Scripture itself teaches regarding how to rightly understand law and gospel. As a result of it, it's as if the the law itself becomes the gospel. And the law is not the gospel. This is one of the things that a lot of folks make a tragic and I think fatal theological error regarding. Because the summary of the law is this, love God, love neighbor. Notice I said that's not the gospel. That's how Jesus defines this entire law is summed up in love God and love neighbor. Because it has the word love, we th- that it, a lot of people think that's the gospel. Oh, the gospel is love God and love neighbor. No, that's the law. And that's the thing that condemns you. Because, because each and every human being is has a sinful nature that is so corrupt that we do not love God with all of our heart and we do not love our neighbors as ourselves. This is this is a corruption in our nature as a result of Adam and Eve's sin so that we're born dead in trespasses and sins and we cannot choose God. We cannot raise ourselves from the dead spiritually. God is the one who has to regenerate us, cause us to be born again by the Spirit. And, uh, and that does not happen through the law. The law is the thing that condemns you, always demanding and never finished. When can you say you are finished and accomplished the task of loving God, loving your neighbor? You haven't. It never ends. But because we're sinful and fallen, we don't love God. And as a result of it, when we hear the command, love God, there's that there's that convicting work of the Holy Spirit going, yeah, and you haven't, have you? You don't. Yeah, and that doesn't save you. We continue. And we will be obedient.
welcome today. I am so excited for you to be here. It's been an amazing morning, and I don't mean just a little. It's been incredible what we've been experiencing so far. But I got to tell you, wasn't it, it was awesome to watch those baptisms, wasn't it? Don't you love that? Man. And what God is doing in our generate area of our church is incredible. And Man, it gets better and better. But a lot of what we're going to talk about today will not directly feed to that, although you're going to understand later how it does, and we'll get going in that direction. Before I get going too far, though, I want to say hi to uh, Brian McKinney, who's actually watching right now in Illinois. God bless you, and man, it's good to have you with us on online. So kind of fun. Uh, We are going to unveil a two-year vision to you. Uh, Turn your Bibles to John 8, and I'll start uh, giving you some idea where we're headed. Okay, did you catch that? They're going to unveil a two-year vision. So this is a vision-casting sermon. Um, Last February, our elders gathered together. We had just uh, no agenda other than saying, how, God, do you want us to proceed? What do you want for Crossroads? What is it that is your desire, your dream for this church? And we honestly didn't have all these plans on purpose. We didn't. We wanted to pray and seek God. And so we began to ask God to show us. And for 40 days, our elders prayed. Okay, now I'm going to interrupt. I'm going to point something out here. Scripture makes it clear what every church is supposed to be doing. And um, you don't need to seek God and ask him what his dream is for your church. Um, and and expect that God's going to somehow give you some kind of a subjective inner voice revealing his dream and vision to either you, your pastor, your leadership team, or anything of the sort. If you want to know what your church is to be busy doing, you open up the biblical text and you read. Because God the Holy Spirit has actually already spelled this out clearly. Make disciples, baptize, You look at what the early church did in Acts chapter 2, devoting themselves to the apostles, teaching the prayers, fellowship, and the breaking of bread. Pastors in the pastoral epistles are admonished to teach what's in accord with sound doctrine, to preach the word in season and out of season. Devote themselves to the public reading of God's word. Breaking bread, prayer. So God's word clearly lays out what the church is to be busy doing. You... (laughs) So this sounds pious. This sounds really spiritual. This sounds Christian-ish. Because look, these guys are Christians. They got together and they sought God and asked him, Lord, what's your dream for our church for the next two years? And they believe that they've heard back from God. But God nowhere promises that when the pastoral leadership gets together and fasts and prays and does these things, that he's going to reveal his dream for a specific congregation for the next two years or even the next month. God has laid out clearly in his word that the, what the church is to be busy doing until he returns. So we got a problem here. Where did he learn this from? This isn't taught in the scriptures. Nowhere do we have an example of any pastor doing anything remotely even resembling this in God's word. You begin with a bad assumption, a bad concept. You're going to end with a bad teaching. Listen, we continue. During that time, we almost all fasted from something. 
But also during that time, we had three full days of fasting, three separate days just chosen to say, only seek God. So the assumption is because they did that, for sure, what they all experienced has its origin in, well, the mind and heart of God. But God doesn't promise to do this. This is strange fire. This is a methodology that's not taught in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture does it tell pastors to do anything even remotely like this. And as we came together... Now, what I mean by that is, yes, pastors are to pray. Pastors are to fast. But regarding what there's, you know, God's going to reveal a dream for them? A prophetic vision that they're supposed to execute for the next two years? No. All of the things the church is to be doing are clearly laid out in Scripture, and that's what the church is to be doing until Christ returns. Unity was off the charts. Now, it's not that we weren't united before, but it just became like, wow, every one of us are hearing the same thing from God. We might have heard it in a little different way, but we all came to the same direction, conclusion, as God brought us together. Uh, George McKinney had a verse that just kept coming back that uh, I, I want to just tell you about. It's in Jeremiah 6, and it, God says this. He says, return to the ancient paths, and there you will find rest for your soul. Well, we felt God was calling for us to return to the ancient past, to get back into his word more than we ever have before, to allow uh, uh, us to be that kind of church we're supposed to be. So what I'm about to share with you, somebody go, man. Now, you got to listen carefully because he's going to define what he means by returning to the ancient paths. And the fact that the sermon begins quoting from Deuteronomy rather than from like Romans or Galatians should be a tip off. These, yeah, we're going to land squarely in the old paths of the Mosaic law, not the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins and the gospel. Yeah, this is this is going to be a train wreck. It's not all that new. It shouldn't be new, but it's going to change our church. It's going to change us personally. All of us who agree to do this, it's going to change us and transform our lives, revolutionize some. And it's going to conform our church into being the church of the Bible we were always meant to be. That's where we're headed. That's what God has for us. And I want to tell you, as we as elders said, okay, this is what God wants us to do, we found out that the minute we said yes, it started growing and growing and growing. So what I'm going to share with you today I think is pretty incredible. But as the weeks come, you're going to see this vision get bigger and bigger and bigger. So let's pray and get ready to start talking about it. Father, I love our church family here. Lord, I'm amazed already at what's happened in the two morning services that precede this one. But God, we just want to hear from you. I pray that you would open our minds to your truth. Open our hearts to your love. And may we live your word. May we be people who are truly committed to you, truly disciples. And I pray, God, today that as you uh, guide us on this path, that we would get more and more excited about you and the life you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's do some audience participation and see how that goes. Uh, I'm going to throw out a phrase, and I'd like you to finish it. So I want you to actually say it. So you ready? We're going to all try it together. Easy start. Like a good neighbor. Okay, let's try it together. Like a good neighbor. Okay, good. You knew that one. How about this? Let's get ready to... Oh, okay, everybody knew that one. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's... 
All right, everyone in the last two hours knew this one. Wax on. Now that one everybody knows. How about this one? I pity. Not as many knew that. You had me at. I noticed meat guys going, my wife made me watch that movie. And uh, you had me at hello. How about this one? I hope you all know this one. God is good. Okay, we're going to do that one. We're not going to hold back. Okay, let's try it again. God is good. And all the time. All right. How about this one? You will know the truth. Set you free. Okay. Now I'm going to ask you not to yell out right now. And and there's a reason. That last phrase, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Is it true? Be careful. Is it true? Is it true you will know the truth and the truth will set you free? It, it, the quick answer is yes, because while that's scriptural, and how could it not be? But, but here's where we're going. You ready? That verse, verse 32, is not true taken apart from verse 31. If you don't plug into verse 31, verse 32 is not true. Lots of people know the truth, but they're still in bondage. Lots of Christians are still addicted to things, uh, uh, overwhelmed by things. They're victims of things. Lots of Christian marriages are going up in smoke. They're not experiencing the truth that sets them free. Uh, lots of people are living anything other than that life that the God talks about in Scripture. And, and why is that? Is it because the verse isn't true? It's because, it's because it is only true if you go to verse 31. You can't take it apart from verse 31. So let's go to what it says and notice what it says right there. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if, let's start with there, if you have a choice, you can or cannot have this true of you. You get to choose. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Did you grab that? If you continue in my word, you are truly disciples of mine. Then, then verse 32 is true. It's true in power. It's true in an awesome kind of living that is off the charts incredible. If you continue in my word. But if you do not continue in the word, then that verse is not true. If you are not his disciple, that verse is not true. It's only for disciples who continue in the word of God. Let's talk about what that means. To continue in the word means to adhere to. Okay, now notice what he's doing here. He's basically taking two two verses, and it's it's one sentence, okay, and he's interpreting the the phrase, "If you abide in my word," and he's basically interpreting it in such a way that it depends upon your obedience. The way he's teaching this is that somehow this is all about uh, you know abiding means ob- uh, basically obeying. All right, now l- let's apply our three primary rules of biblical interpretation. They are context, context, and, well, the last one is context. So let's let's do a little bit of contextual work here, and let's see if we can kind of figure out what's going on by putting the, you know, John 8, 31, and 32 in their greater context. And this is a great passage, by the way. Um, and, uh, this is one of these passages that's like John eight needs to be like one of the passages that is a go-to passage, one that you are highlighting and you, you regularly understand because the Christology taught here is, is very important. 
So um, I'm going to start at verse 12, John chapter 8, starting at verse 12, and let's, and I'm going to go past verse 30 and 31 and 32 a little bit just to kind of put it into its bigger framework. Because one of the things you'll notice about this sermon is is that um, Pastor Booher is like all over the map. He's ripping a passage out here, ripping a passage out here, ripping another passage out here. So we got John, we're going to hear a passage from Luke, a passage from Jeremiah, a passage from Deuteronomy, and all strung together. But the problem is this, is that we're not gear- getting the coherent thoughts that all hang together uh, in these verses. So as a result of it, you were ripping these thoughts out of context and stringing them together, but they were never meant to be strung together this way. Does that make sense? They they don't necessarily talk about the same thing. So go back to what we did in the first hour uh, with uh, Pamela Carter, where she you know, was talking about kingdom finances and then goes to the feeding of the 5,000 and Peter walking on the water. But the, the uh, Peter walking on the water and the feeding of the 5,000 have zero, absolutely nothing to do with finances. In fact, finances aren't even mentioned in them, period, except for uh, to say that we don't have enough money to feed the people. I mean, but it's not about applying principles for that. So let's take a look at what's going on in this passage. John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follow me, follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisee said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where you come from or where you are go- or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even I do not I even yet even if I do judge my judgment is true for I it is not I alone who judge but I and the father who sent me in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true I am the one who bears witness about myself and the father who sent me bears witness about me okay now notice here just completely off topic this passage right here immediately shoots down modalism Why? Because Jesus here is referring to himself and the Father as two different persons who are testifying. If modalism teaches that Jesus and the Father are technically actually the same, it's just that the Father is one manifestation of God and that the Son is another manifestation. But here Jesus is basically saying this. Um, It says, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So they got testimony of two. So they said to him, they said to Jesus, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you not you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury and as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, Jesus is not just saying, unless you believe that I exist. Okay, Uh, The Greek here is actually 
very strong and very poignant, and it's pointing to something in the Old Testament. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, ego a me, he's invoking the divine name for himself from Exodus chapter 3. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. In Exodus chapter 3, you have Moses speaking to God at the burning bush, and Moses asked God, who should I say sent me? And the one speaking from the burning bush, God, says, I am, that I am. Tell him I am has sent you, right? So this is what Jesus is doing. He's, so here he's just invoked the divine name for himself. And these Pharisees know exactly what Jesus is doing. These folks are experts in the Torah. And they are experts in, 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 um, in basically the names of God and how God has revealed himself and how he speaks of himself. So Jesus, I told you that you would die in your sins, <clears throat> for unless you believe that I am, he's basically saying, unless you believe I am God, unless you believe I am the I am of the burning bush, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Now, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he said to, and he sent me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I am always doing the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you can say to us, you will become free? So notice that Jesus is talking about them being set free like slaves, right? So Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do, not, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if, Abraham, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now that you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God... This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your that your father did. So they said to him, We are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, Well, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, 
and has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you, if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and that you have a demon? Notice things are getting really nasty now. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps, that means guards, my word, he will never see death. So the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, and yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the, and, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be exactly? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you say you have, known, you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Because he's got details about Abraham's life that are not revealed in the scripture. So Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, ego, in me, I am. And they got it. So they picked up stones to throw at Jesus, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The reason why they picked up stones is because here Jesus is claiming to be God. So this is, John chapter 8 is a very, very important Christological chapter in the scriptures. Okay, now let's come back. Put this in in context. Verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And um, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Okay. The Greek word, therefore, uh, if you remain, if you hold to, it's it's meno. It means to remain or to stay. If you hold to my teaching, if you yeah, so that so when it talks about abiding in His Word, it means remaining and staying in His teaching, in His Word, that you continue to hear it. That's really the 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 gist of the Greek word there from meno. Uh, another secondary con, uh, uh, definition: to continue to exist, to remain, to last, to persist, to continue. So the idea here is is that. When and when Jesus says um, in the ESV, let me translate it. If you abide in my word, so the the the, the Greek word for abide is meno. That means if you continue in it, if you persist in my words, continue to hear it. Notice Jesus is elevating his word to the status of scripture, to the status of. 
God's word. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's all that Jesus is saying there. Okay, But in um, Pastor Booher's mind, this is somehow all about obedience to the law. We'll talk about more about this in a minute, but let me let's uh, let's get more from uh, Pastor Booher. Some translations have abide in. It means to dwell, so you never leave it. That every single thing that's said in the Word of God is what you guide your life by. You're committed to His Word. You don't veer off from it. You can't be kinda in the Word. You got to be truly in the Word, continuing in it. If you do, the next thing will happen. Then you're a disciple. Now, a disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ. A disciple is someone who wants to be like Christ. If you're a disciple, you look at the one who is, you're following, and you say, I want my life to be exactly how his is. So we want to be like Jesus. We want to speak the way Jesus would speak in our situation. Live the way that Jesus would live in our situation. Love the way that Jesus would love in our situation. We want to be like him. By the way, too many people say they're Christians and they don't want to be like Jesus. That's not the guiding thing in their life. Now, I'm going to talk about some burdens that I have. Okay, this is reducing Jesus down to somehow the perfect example of the perfect Christian life. Now, granted, Jesus never sinned. And it's important, Christ-likeness is not something that Christians should eschew. But Jesus is more than that. See, the the reason why it's important to look at Jesus' life and realize that he was sinless is because his righteousness is given to you as a gift, as if you're the one who lived it. Okay, so when God looks at the Christian, keep this in mind. Remember, on the cross, your sins are laid on Christ. When you are brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins... His perfect righteousness, his perfect Christ-likeness is given to you as if you are the one who lived it. So at this point, he's not talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ. He's actually talking about us looking at how Jesus did it, and then we've got to do it that way. Um, Where's the gospel in all of this? And... Um, let me read to you a passage that, that I think you need to hear in in uh, in comparison to this. In, in the early church, there were guys out there who wanted to be teachers of the law. Okay, who somehow thought that Christian—if you're truly a Christian—then you've got to obey the Mosaic law, and you've got to be obedient to it, or else you're not really truly a Christian. Paul writes about them in Philippians chapter three. Here's what he says. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless or faultless. Okay? But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them, all of his good works under the Mosaic law, he counts them as rubbish, 
Yeah, that's kind of a euphemism. The English translation is weak there. It's it's really scubalon, and it's, it's I consider all of my good works under the law as um well think of it as a, a as a yard bomb put there by your dog. Okay. That's the right way of looking at it. Um I look at that as excrement in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So the idea is here is this. The gospel announces that not that you that your obedience doesn't earn God's favor and blessing. In fact, Paul writing about his obedience under the Mosaic law says that it's a a yard bomb. It's 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 dog excrement. It's a big pile of steamy poop. It's the best it com- that his righteousness comes to is that and he wants to be found in Christ not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but the righteousness that is by faith. That's Christ's righteousness imputed to him as if he's the one who lived it. So that's the idea there. Okay? This sermon is already heading in a very, very bad direction. Because... Number one, God apparently told the the pastoral staff all of this stuff, that this is his vision for them for the next two years. But this vision that they've supposedly received from God after fasting and praying and all this stuff that they did in preparation to receive God's big dream for this church, um, it doesn't sound like it actually came from the biblical God, from, from Christ at all. Because already what we're hearing is flat-out self righteousness. We're not hearing the gospel. We're not hearing the righteousness of faith. We're hearing all the righteousness under the law, which Paul says is a big pile of steaming dog excrement. Hmm. You know, Paul also writes about guys like this in the opening uh, in the opening sentences to his epistle to Timothy, 1 Timothy. Let me read it to you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than stewardship stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make such confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. 
understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I am thankful. I, th I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me in his service. Formerly, uh, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, uh, in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King of Ages, the Immortal, the Invisible, the Only Begotten, the Only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So, I mean, even in First Timothy, we got this problem here. There's people who have come into the church that Paul warns them to stop teaching. You tell these guys to stop, knock it off. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't even understand what they're teaching. And they're swerving away from the real Christian faith, from the real Christian message. And that is, is that God forgives sinners by grace through faith in Christ that you don't stand before God in your own righteousness. Instead, repent and be forgiven. Faith is all about clinging to and trusting in the promises of God for forgiveness. Today and then a few weeks, but let me give you one of them. I have a burden because I want to make sure you understand this. Nowhere in the Bible... Is salvation promised to someone who's not a disciple? Nowhere. You go, oh, but I'm a Christian. Well, the word Christian means one who belongs to Christ. You could have the name. The question is, do you belong to him? Someone who's a Christ follower, a Christian, has in their heart and mind, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. You can't partially be that. It's a wholehearted commitment, an all-encompassing life. But if you do, Notice he's defining the disciple as somebody who obeys the law, not believes and trusts in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And if you continue in his word, then those words are true. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You'll experience life like you can't imagine. It will be an amazing way to live and you're going to start understanding something. But notice this, it says, if you continue my, in my word, you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth. The word know there, the word know is the Greek word gnosko. It means to know by experience. It's not you're going to know it in your head. You'll know that. It's you're going to know it in your life. See, that's, that's the danger of it all. We might know some things in the Bible. The question is, do we know them because we're experiencing them? Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you'll experience this. Let me give you an example of that. Fasting is beautiful, but you'll never know the beauty of the fast unless you fast. Right? Does that make sense? Tithing is a joyous thing, but you'll never know the joy of the tithe if you don't tithe. 
Prayer is powerful, but you'll never know the power of prayer unless you pray. Jesus has called for us to fast, to pray, and to tithe. Jesus himself told us where to do that. But none of us will ever know what it's like to do it unless you do it. But then when you do it, you go, now I see. Now I know. Now I get it. Now it makes sense to me. I know this truth. And as I know and experience these amazing things from the Lord, it sets me free. And that's what God wants for you. And that's what he wants for me. And the next two years and beyond, but the next two years and beyond, we are going to drive home being a people who truly continue in his word. And we know the truth and the truth sets us free because we're disciples of his. It's about this church being filled with disciples that we're those kind of people. Now, as you uh, think about that, turn in your Bibles to Luke 17. Luke 17. Jesus was approached by the apostles and he said, they said to him, increase our faith. Now, while you're turning there, Luke 17, and I want you to really hold on to that passage. I want to ask you something. Do you want an ever-increasing faith? Do you really want it? Do you really want to have a, a, a vibrant faith, a deep faith, a faith that grows and grows and grows and it becomes more powerful? Do you want that? Because Jesus is about to tell us how to get it. But before he tells the apostles how to get it, you know what he does? He tells them what it would be like. They say, Lord, increase our faith. He goes, do you want to know what you're asking for? Do you want to know what this kind of life should, it will be like if you have it? And, and that's what he gets at. But we'll start in verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Did you catch what he said? He said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, a mustard seed so small, if I held one up right now, nobody could see it. It's that little. But when you plant it in the ground, it grows fast and it grows big. And it's almost shocking how that little seed could produce that huge plant. And the Lord said, if you had mustard seed like faith, you could uproot mulberry trees. Now, I want you to think what that would be like. I mean, imagine after the service, you go, man, I've got mustard seed-sized faith. And you walk outside, and you look at one of our 50-foot palm trees, and you go, be uprooted. And it shoots off in the air and goes all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And we're all going, whoa, do it again. You know, I mean, wouldn't you? Would you be astounded by that? Are you catch what Jesus is saying? If you and I have mustard seed-sized faith, we'll have an astounding life. You'll walk around going, whoa, this is incredible. This is amazing. Uh, later on, Jesus would take Peter, James, and John to the Mount of Transfiguration. There, standing in front of them, he would be transfigured into the glowing glory of God. Then when they came down the mountain, the apostles are waiting down there, and they're being defeated. There's a boy who's demon-possessed, and they can't cast the demon out. Jesus walks up, and he casts the demon out, and then he turns and says, How long do I have to put up with you, you of little faith? He says, why, why, do I have, why do we have this problem? And then later on, they say, Lord, why couldn't we cast it out? Listen to what Jesus says. Uh, hold, on, hold on to Luke 17, but listen to what he says in Matthew 17, verse 20. And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Do you catch what happens? When you have mustard seed-sized faith, it starts with uprooting mulberry trees, and then it grows to where you can move mountains. 
It grows to where nothing's impossible to you. It grows to where you live a life that's so incredible you can't believe it. That's what he said it's like. So when they say, increase our faith, Lord, we want that. The Lord says, do you realize what you're going to have? This is going to be amazing. You're going to start living that kind of life. Here's the question. Are you and I living it? Are we living a life of mustard seed faith where mountains are moved and mulberry trees are uprooted and amazing things are happening? Okay, now I'm going to point something out here. He, he just pulled a semantic fast one, and it happens so fast, it's tough to catch. I'm going to back this up just a little bit, so see if you can hear it. Now, here's what you're going to listen for. Um, if you go to... The Luke 17 verses, you know, he's really quoting verse 6 here. But watch what he does here. Luke 17, verse 5. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. What is faith? Okay, the Greek word here, this is the noun form, hey, pistis. It is trust. Okay, it's an unwavering fidelity, assurance, and trust. The Greek word, the verb form of it, pistuo, is a state of believing based on the reliability of the one trusted. Okay, it's a state of believing on the basis of the reliability of the one that's being trusted in. That's what pistis is. So the disciples didn't come to Jesus and say, increase our obedience. They said, Lord, increase our trust, increase our belief in you. So Jesus said, if you had faith, that's trust and belief, like a grain of mustard, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Okay? Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping his sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table, will he not say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, serve me while I eat and drink, Afterwards, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So all you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Okay. So I think a good way of looking at this passage here is that Jesus is shooting down the idea of self-righteousness or somehow earning brownie points with God via obedience to the law. He's taking a shot at obedience to the law and says, you know, when a servant does all that he's done, here's what he should do. So all of you, when you have done all that you were commanded, should say we are unworthy servants for we have only done what was our duty. I think a clear case can be made here that Jesus here, in talking about increasing faith, what that requires is a decrease in confidence in your self-righteousness, that somehow your obedience earns something. That's what's really going on in this passage. But what, uh, what Booher does here is he doesn't define the word faith clearly. As a result of it, he's going to start to create the impression that the word Pistis, here in the Greek, somehow is is associated with 
obedience to the law. But if you understand your biblical categories of law and gospel correctly, then you know that faith and obedience are actually two different categories. Okay, watch what he does. I'm going to back this up just a smidge. Here we go can't believe it that's what he said it's like so when they say increase our faith lord we want that the lord says do you realize what you're going to have this is going to be amazing you're going to start living that kind of life here's the question are you and i living it are we living a life of mustard seed faith where mountains are moved and mulberry trees are uprooted and amazing things are happening where what we read in here is actually happening in our life. The Bible was meant to show you what it's like to live life and experience life with God. Is this the life you're living? Wow. So all of a sudden, uh, you know, if you're not experiencing the miracles that took place in the scriptures, you're not living right. Think obedience to the law. It's not the reason why the miracles are recorded in the scriptures. The miracles that are recorded in the scriptures are there to confirm and provide evidence for the message that we're to believe. With God moving and guiding and speaking to you and incredible things occurring, is that the kind of life? And let's just get super honest. For most Christians, the answer is no. We're anemic, not powerful. We're not watching great and mighty things happen. What does it say in Jeremiah 33.3? God says, call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and mighty things you do not know. Another. Okay, let's put context around Jeremiah 33.3. I mean, apparently there's some kind of general thing here. Um, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 33. Let's take a look here. Yeah, uh, context, context, context. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 33, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it. Yahweh is his name. Call to me, I will answer you, and tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the house, houses of the city and the houses of the king of Judah that were torn down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword. They are coming in to fight against the Chaldeans and to fill them with the dead bodies of men who shall strike down in my anger and my wrath, for I have hidden my face from this city because of all of their evil. Hmm. Yeah, the... the uh, hmm. Yeah, uh, we got a problem here, and that is is that he's completely ripped Jeremiah 33, verse 3, out of context, and somehow weaving this into this theology that he's putting together in this vision-casting sermon, that somehow God is calling everybody to obedience. Now, granted, God is calling all people to obedience, but not this way he first calls all of us to repentance and the forgiveness of, of our sins and faith and trust in him and that faith produces good works but he's not preaching faith he's preaching stark naked raw legalistic 
and I would even say Judaistic legalism. The very thing that the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 describes as a steaming hot pile of dog poop. We continue. Way to translate that verse accurately. I will show you great and mighty things. See, you and I are meant to live the great and mighty life where God is showing you these things and you're going, this is incredible. That's what God wants for us. Hmm. Okay, so apparently this is also, you know, Jeremiah 33 verse 3 is being used to somehow prove that God wants us to live the great and mighty life. And that's the indicator as to whether or not you're truly being obedient to God is if you are living the great and mighty life. This is not what the scriptures teach at all. Uh, This summer, I was asked to speak at a church in Illinois. And when I got done speaking on Saturday night, I walked off the stage and some people came up to talk. And and one man walked up, the first guy to get to me. And he said, "Um, hi, my name's Greg. And he said, Pastor Chuck, look, I'm not trying to challenge you. I, I really am not, but I have to ask a question. Is what you just said true? Now, Greg, I found out was a Christian. But what I had been talking about is I had been telling stories that have happened at Crossroads this last year. Amazing things. And so he said, is that true? Well, before I could answer, the guy who was standing right here, he he said, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. He goes, I'm Tom. Greg, you know me. He goes, I'm here to tell you, Pastor Chuck, keep preaching it. Okay, now I'm going to point something out here. Now he's telling anecdotal stories from apparently the experience of his life and others that prove his point from his misreading of Jeremiah 33.3, that God is calling you to this incredible, amazing, miracle-filled life, and and this proves it. These stories are being told to prove that point. Keep preaching it. You were given the story of my life. He goes, Greg, let me tell you. And here's what happened. About a year before that, uh, Tom uh, had one of my friends challenge him to tune into the whisper of God. By the way, over the next two years, I'm going to show you how. We're going to teach you how to tune in to the very whisper of God. It says in Job 33 that God speaks once, even twice, yet no one notices. We're going to show you how to notice. So apparently you're going to learn how to tune into the whisper of God channel out there in the spiritual ether. This is a problem. Severe, severe danger. Danger, Will Robinson. This is a problem. Bible and he was doing his quiet yet no one notices we're going to show you how to notice we're going to show you how to make sure it's him and be guided by him but Tom said he was challenged about that so what he did is he got his Bible and he was doing his quiet time and and he just stopped and said Lord here I am I'm listening do you have anything to say to me and there was this kind of movement and thought came to his mind and it says I want you to take eggs to church and hand them out And Tom, by the way, is an egg rancher. So he thought, well, I could do that, but God, is that you? And he kind of got nothing back. And and he thought, okay, I don't know. And, And Sunday came, and he's getting ready to get in the car with his wife, and it comes again. I want you to take eggs to church and hand them out. And he thought, okay. And he's jumping out of the car, and his wife goes, where are you going? He said, God wants me to hand out eggs to church. And she thought, oh, okay. So he ran in and got cartons of eggs and brought them back because that's his business. And they drive. To- okay, now I'm going to point something out. I've heard this same sermon illustration 
or variations of this exact same sermon illustration taught by other pastors. So I'm I'm going to throw a flag on the play and say that this needs to be reviewed upstairs. Um, what I mean by that is is that I'm challenging the historical accuracy of this anecdote because I've heard other pastors tell this story as if this egg rancher also went to their churches. The church and he's walking along going hey god wants you to have some eggs and people are like oh thanks i got a dozen eggs and he's just handing them out and they're all excited well a guy's coming out of the this the earlier service they're all going into the next one and the guy walks out and tom goes up to him and said hey uh, god wants you to have these eggs and the guy looked at him and said tom i don't want to offend you i know it's your business but i hate eggs i can't stand them i don't want them in my house don't want them in my car and Tom goes, I think God wants you to have them, and you just do with them what you want. The guy's like, okay. And he takes them, and he's walking out into the parking lot, and there's a lady getting out of her car, and he walks over. He goes, oh, excuse me. He said, I think God wants you to have these. And she screams and starts to cry. And she said, um, I teach in the high school in town. I, I'm one of the teachers in the high school, and I'm an atheist. And I am so tired of the students from this church coming and challenging me. I decided I was going to come to church today and prove there is no God. So when I got up this morning, I said, God, if you're real, have someone walk up and hand me a dozen eggs. Yeah. There are some of you who are sitting there going, is that true? But it's true. God does those things. All right, God, God does it. I want you to be aware. He, he does that here. The God of the Bible is alive today. All these things are happening, and he doesn't change. And he wants you to experience this great and mighty life. And by the way, God is rocking this world. So God wants you to experience this great and mighty life, but. He really is. The question is, do we want to get on board with him? Uh, uh, there's an area, yeah, praise God for that. There's an area called the 1040 window geographically. And, and we've been praying over that for years. It, it's an area of the world that has the least penetration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's mainly Islamic. But I want to tell you, something started happening a few years ago. God started using dreams and visions and revivals and all these things. So now we are watching a movement of God in the 1040 window like we can't imagine. By the way, I think that's a sign of the last days. I think God's moving like you can't imagine. And what's happening right now is we're watching Islamic person after Islamic person coming to Christ because God's moving and the church is exploding. Um, I'll share more about this later, but in the last 10 years, more Islamic people have given their life to Jesus Christ than the last 15 centuries combined. See, that's happening. And, and God is being the God of the Bible. He really is. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, just to kind of talk about this. Some of you know, most of you know, I hope, that right now one of our, our brothers in Christ, a pastor in Iran, has been sentenced to death for being a Christian. Did you guys? It blows my mind. You go on the internet and start reading about it. It's happening right now. He converted to Christianity, and he's been told if he doesn't convert back to Islam, they're putting him to death. Just yesterday, they asked him again, will he convert to Islam? He said, no, you'll have to kill me instead. He's doing that. Um, have you noticed that none of the news media is covering it? You know, it, it just, it, that bugs me. But you know what else happened a month ago? 70 of our brothers and sisters in Iran were arrested. Christian leaders. Right now, nobody knows where they are. Pam and I sat in a gathering where they showed all 70 pictures and uh, asked us to pray and pray for them. 
And, and you know why that's happening is because the church in Iran is exploding. It's because the church is winning, because people are being won, because God's moving, and he's moving in amazing ways. And so men are trying to stop the movement of God because they're afraid of it and because it's happening. Uh, one of the ladies who was sharing told about a couple that works for their organization, Iran. They're Iranians, and what they do is, is this organization here in Irvine ships Bibles to them, and then they hand the Bibles out. It's kind of interesting. It's, it's legal to ship Bibles into Iran. It's even legal to hand them out, but if you're caught with one, you can be imprisoned. They use that to catch people. And so this couple gets it, and they try to get it to people. Well, what happened uh, not very long ago is, is they got a shipment of Bibles, and they were taking them into the northern part of Iran to give them to a house church. So they were going to sneak them in, give Bibles to them. And so they got into this kind of little city, and, and the, the husband said to the wife, you go into the store, and you... You get dessert that we'll bring to him. I'm going to go in the bank and get some money. And, and, and then he looked at his wife. He said, honey, please don't witness. And she just looked at him. He said, I know, I know you're not listening to me. I'm not kidding. Do not witness. Do not share Christ. If you do, we'll expose ourselves. They'll follow us. This church will be caught. We need to keep it underground right now. Honey, please don't do it. And she just looked at him. He's like, oh, I know you're going to witness. Don't witness. And so he goes in the bank the whole time. He said his stomach was churning. I know she's going to witness. I know it. And then he walked out and his heart dropped because sitting in front of the store that she went into, Not knowing it now, sitting in front of the store is an Islamic mullah. A mullah is an Islamic scholar who in Iran has the authority to order anybody's arrest at any moment. And she had no idea. When she went and he wasn't there, now he's sitting on a stool in front of the store. And and he thinks, oh, she doesn't know. She doesn't know. And as he gets closer, he's praying, please, God, don't let her be witnessing. Well, she wasn't witnessing. When he got, like, literally... uh, little bit of a distance from the store. He could hear her voice. She's preaching. She's preaching Jesus. She's going to town. She has no idea the mullah's outside. He rushes in. She's got a little crowd gathered. She's just preaching away. And he grabs her and goes, we've got to go. And she goes, no, 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 they want to hear. And he goes, no, we got to go. We got to go now. And he drags her out and they get to the car. And she looked at him and said, I am so ashamed of you. I am so ashamed of you right now. And he said, don't you realize we could be imprisoned? And she said, yeah, I'd rather be in prison than those people go to hell. I'm ashamed. And so, yeah, praise God for her faith. So he said, you know, you're right. You're right. And he thought, if we're going to get in trouble, let's, let's do this. As a matter of fact, he thought, if we're going to go down, let's go down big. So he opens the trunk and gets out a whole bunch of Bibles. He walks past the mullah carrying them. Goes into the store. The little crowd's gathered still. And he walked up. He said, I just want to apologize. I'm sorry for how I acted. I'm ashamed for how I acted. I should never have done that to you. And, and I don't know if you'll want these, but if you want, I'd love to give you a Bible. Now, I want you to think about what that means. If they take that Bible, they may be arrested. If they take that Bible, if they take that Bible, they may lose their family and their job. Maybe worse. And every single one of them took a Bible. Every one of them. I want us to become a church that loves our Bible like they do. I want us to be a church that treasures our Bibles like they do. Good. Then begin by teaching them the proper distinction of law and gospel as laid out clearly for us in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians. Over the next two years, let's be a people of the Word of God and make sure we do that. Just for two years. Hmm. 
Then he looked at him and said, I just want to invite anybody here who wants to give their life to Christ to do it. And every single person there prayed the prayer knowing what it could cost them and gave their lives to the Lord. And when he walked out of the store, he thought, well, I'm already in trouble. And he looked at the mullah and he said, "Um, would you like one of these? And he held out a Bible and the mullah starts crying. And he said, last night I had a dream and in my dream, Jesus appeared to me. And Jesus told me to come and sit on this stool and someone would come and give me the words of life. And he grabbed it and said, thank you, thank you, thank you. See, God is doing that. By the way, Tom was standing there and he said, I got to tell you that this guy in Illinois, he said, I, that's the beginning of the story. The beginning of the story is that, that I started saying yes to God. Now God has just opened the door to take me all around the world because of my business. His number one place to sell eggs right now is in Jordan. And you know that he gets, he said, I get access nobody else has. So he's been taking his egg business into Jordan, but he trained a team of people to share Christ in Jordan. And they've been watching person after person give their life to the Lord. And Tom told us, he said, last week, a mullah not only gave his life to Christ, he ended up sharing with his mosque and the whole mosque gave their lives to the Lord. So see, we're seeing this happen. God is moving. And I want to tell you that should be your life. Please don't miss it. The words of the Bible are true. I know many of you wanted to scream out. You'll know the truth that said truth will set you free is true. It is true if you're a disciple. It is true if you carry out, if you're continuing his word. Jeremiah 33, 3 is true for you. Call to me and I will answer you. That's the life you and I need to be living. We need to have mustard seed sized faith that makes this happen. That's what the Lord says. Just faith like a mustard seed. Really, truly be committed. Be committed. First uh, Corinthians two nine. Don't turn there. We'll get. I wanted to make sure you're in Luke seventeen. It's one of my favorite verses. It says, "Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it ever entered into the heart of a man what God has prepared for those who love Him." Think about that. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it ever entered into your heart. That means your imagination. All the things God has prepared for those who love Him. Do you realize God's preparing amazing things for you? Again, the question: Is that you? Is that the life you're living? Is that who you are? Is God unveiling it to you? You know, I talk all the time about the fact that I love being a grandparent. Man, I got to tell you, I'm going to say it again. Being a grandparent is the greatest life you could ever live. It really is. Being a parent was awesome. Being a grandparent's better. How many grandparents do we have here? Raise your hand. Would you all agree with me it's better to be a grandparent? Isn't it way better to be a grandparent? It really is. You know, I got to tell you, when, when my son Rich was born and I held him, I thought, man, I didn't know I could love like that. I, I, I wasn't expecting how deep my love would go for him. Then when Tim was born, it went to a whole new level. And then I got my two granddaughters and my grandson and my other granddaughter. And I'm like, oh, oh, I didn't know I could love like that. Now, I love Rich. I love Tim. But you got to think about Liam. I mean, wow. If Tim and Liam were standing in front of a bus, Tim better know Jesus. Uh, really better. I, I mean, I got to tell you, it's not even a question which one I'd save. You know, Tim, you're going down, man. Good that boy. Isn't that true? All the grandparents, isn't that how you are too? Now, our grandchildren spend every Tuesday night at our house. They stay overnight. So you know what? We have a tradition on Monday. And you know what we do on Monday? We go to the store and buy them their favorite things. The best snacks, uh, the best food. We want all that for them. All too often, I buy them gifts. I mean, the other day, Pam was shocked. I bought them a Mickey and a Minnie Mouse that are three times the size they are. 
They come walking in, oh, you know, and there they are. And so you know what happens now? Whenever they start coming down our street, Tim and Jill, then Liam and Eleni start screaming, Papa, Papa, Papa's house. I love they say that, not Grammy's house, Papa's house. And, and when they come in the door, we just keep giving them stuff all the time. We prepare for them. We prepare. Now you might say, why do you do that? Why do you do it? Well, obviously I love them, but there's another reason. I want to give them such an amazing time when they go home. Nothing Tim and Jill can do will even come close to us. And we have more money than they do, so we can, yeah, you know. But I'm serious about this, ready? That's how God feels about you. Did you know that? That's how God feels about you. The Bible says that right there, 1 Corinthians 2, 9. He has prepared things beyond your imagination. And, and here's where we're going. If I could only tell you how great your life would be over the next two years, if you would get uh, on board with us, then you would be in awe of it. But I can't tell it to you because words can't describe how great it would be. You've got to choose in. So apparently God has this big adventure for you and all this amazing life. And it's going to be just like visiting your grandpa's house. All of that um, based on sec, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.9. <clears throat> context, context, context. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know what? I want to back this up because this is a fantastic passage. And this thought here regarding the gospel really um, begins earlier in uh, in uh, chapter 1. I'll start at chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I... When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let me pause there. I haven't heard anything about Christ and him crucified from 
Pastor Booher at all. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understand this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed already to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except for the Spirit of that person which is in him? So no one comprehends the thoughts of God except for the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Yeah, um, it's important to note here that um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 is not saying, oh, if you just become a Christian or follow the vision that we have for this church that God has revealed, this dream that he's revealed for the next two years, oh, man, your life is going to turn upside down. You, you haven't even begun to imagine what it is that God wants to do in your life if you just sign on with our two-year dream and vision that God has for us not what that passage is about at all and it becomes clear that that's not what it's about at all when you read it in context let's continue you've got to choose to experience the word if you continue in my word if you had faith the size of a mustard seed it would literally be incredible but we have to be completely committed to everything that god has for us now jesus said this is the kind of life you should have but then he tells us how to get it look what it says starting in verse 7 luke 17 verse 7 this is the kind of life that you should have, and then Jesus tells you how you can get it. Oh, man. Jesus gives a story that they could understand. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat? And properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterwards, you may eat and drink. The master does not thank the slave because he did the things which are commanded, does he? And everybody go, no, you don't do that. When you have a slave, you say, do this, do this. He said, I want you to be like a slave that's obedient in the field and obedient in the home. And whatever you're told to do, you do. If you do that, your faith will grow. Now, I want you to catch that. If you do that, your faith will grow. That's not what Jesus said. Now, you're inserting that in the text. Now, notice how this ends in verse 10. So you too, this is you and I, so you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say we are unworthy slaves, we have only done that which we ought to have done. If you want mustard seed size faith, do every single thing the Lord commands you. If you want mustard seed size faith, do everything the Lord commands you. And there it is. That's... that's it's like a resurgence of the Galatian heresy. 
Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. <laughs> oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The answer is hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted, imputed to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. See, uh, Pastor Boo here, Boo here, here is basically saying, if you want to grow your faith, you have to be obedient to all that Christ has commanded. It's not what the text says. In fact, other passages clearly, clearly, clearly rule that out. Hide by His word, continue in His word, be that kind of person, and then you're going to have it. Notice that word, all, all. We can't be people of the sum. Too many people say they're Christians and they only are partially committed. By the way, you know what we call that? Lukewarm. Lukewarm. You'll never have the amazing movement of God if that's who you are. I don't know about you, but I love all the Christian songs we sing. But I also So the good news is you can have the amazing you know, manifestations of the works of God in your life, but you've got to be 100% committed. In other words, you'll never achieve it because in order to be 100% committed you got to be 100% sinless. That's what the law demands. Also love the hymns. Man, some of the hymns get me. Man, that one hymn I love, some to Jesus I surrender, some to him I freely give. Is that how it goes? Doesn't that just sound wrong? Don't you want to throw something at me? It's all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I, yeah, I don't believe you. Show me that by your sinless life. I will ever love and trust him and in his presence daily live. Don't miss this. You will not be in his presence only surrendering some. It's I surrender all. So you won't be in his presence only surrendering some. In other words, you're saved 100% by your perfect, righteous obedience to God's law. I surrender all. I surrender all, not partly. Nowhere in the Bible does it say be half-hearted. It says be wholehearted. By the way, we're not talking about being perfect. We're talking about being wholehearted to God. That's what he wants us to be. I want to say this to you as clearly as I can. Over the next two years, we're going to call for everybody in this church to be completely surrendered to Jesus Christ. No half-hearted, no halfway, no lukewarm. And by the way, all of you who are on fire for God. Well, then you better step down because you don't obey God perfectly. God, let's take it up another level. Let's flame on, go up, be better. All of you who are lukewarm, we hope that you start to get a contagious call to now heat up for God. But I want to say this. If you're lukewarm, I want you to be so uncomfortable in this church, you cannot stand it. I'm not kidding. It's going to be that way. We really are going to be that way. And it's not. And this is what he claims God has told them and, you know, in, you know, and him and the staff and the vision that they apparently received. God come back and he basically came back and said, 
live my law perfectly. Not about just saying it, we're going to call it into account. You see, I found out something. You cannot be a disciple of Christ and be anonymous here. No matter how this church, this church is, that's not possible. And anybody comes and thinks they can just sit in a seat and walk out and think they're okay. That's not okay. And it's about being completely committed to Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ says pray, we need to pray. By the way, I want to tell you, are we a prayerful church? Are we a church that prays with power? Now, here's the answer. If I call a prayer meeting on Friday, would this building pack out? What's the answer? No, no, it won't. Now, here's why. Because too many lukewarm people are here. Now, you, you go, whoa, that's harsh. No, that's just true. Is everybody here tithing? Come on, we know you're not. Is that okay? By the way, if you don't tithe, it's a sin. It's a sin. God, yeah, no, actually, that's not correct. God calls for you to give the first 10% to him. Uh, no, that's what God called the people of Israel to give in tax in order to support the Levitical priesthood. And, and, and Jesus said it. Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, this is what you ought to do. You should, you should tithe. You should this also is taking Jesus' words out of context. Do the weightier matters of the law, love and justice, but you ought to tithe. Jesus said it that clearly. You could play all the mental Olympics you want with it. It's New Testament, words of Jesus, tithe. Paul talks about tithing. There's no doubt. We'll talk about that later. So, you know, people who don't want to do that, let me ask you, are you willing to truly... No, the Apostle Paul says to Christians that he wants them to be cheerful givers, givers who give not out of compulsion. What Paul says. Say, all that the Lord says I'll do, or are you going to go, no, I'm going to pick and choose. And if you do, I don't want you to feel okay with that. By the way, for anybody who has been lukewarm and you've been comfortable in this church, I apologize. I ask for your forgiveness for me ever letting you feel that way. That's not okay. And it won't be in the future. This next two years, we're going to see this church be faithful. The next two years, we're calling for total commitment. We're not going to say that it's okay to be that way. You know, by the way, in the book of Proverbs, it says, honor the Lord with your wealth and from the first of all your produce so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Why aren't barns filled with plenty and lives overflowing? Because people aren't tithing. And, and you might say, some go, oh, that's Old Testament. Well, the verses before. Then why does Tiger Woods have so many bazillions of dollars? I don't see him tithing. It say, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. By the way, is that for us today? But is that for us today? So why is the next passage not? Yeah, you don't understand the difference between law and gospel. That's why. Oh, because it's my money and I want to hang on to that. No, that's that, you know, and you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, I, we are not. We are not going to be half-hearted in how we preach and teach, and we're going to call everybody here to a full commitment. And if this church is filled with disciples, it'll be the most amazing place ever. It'll be right out of the book of Acts. And we need to be that kind of church. No, actually, it'll have nothing to do with the church from the book of Acts. You're, you're actually taking people back to the Mosaic Law. It'll be a lot like children of Israel on Mount Sinai, but you ain't the Israelites. We continue. Turn to Exodus 24-7. You really want to see this. 24-7. This is one of our driving verses along with the other passages I read for where we're headed. Uh, while you're turning there, let me tell you what this is. Moses has uh, read the law to the people, and they're going to respond to the law when it's read. 
Uh, and, and out of that, you need to understand something. They just get so excited about uh, obeying the law. And so what happens is Exodus 24, 7 says this. Then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Now, now catch that. First of all, all. No halfway. All that the Lord has said, we will do and we will be obedient. Now, what I just read you in the Mishnah is called the Asa Shema. The greatest verse in all the Bible is the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, which says, hear, or Shema, O Israel, the Hebrew word hear is the Hebrew word Shema, which means to hear with understanding. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul and all your might, all your heart and all your soul and all your might. That's the Shema, to hear with understanding that we need to love God with everything we have. And, and what that is, is the great commandment. According to the Mishnah, and Jesus would say yes to this, this verse, the Asa... According to the Mishnah. Now he's taking us back literally to Judaistic legalism. Shema is how we grow in faith. How we grow in faith. How we enact the great calling of God. And so I want to kind of dig deeply with you. Get ready for some depth here. It says this. It says, the people said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's the Hebrew word, asa. It means we'll do it with all our might. We will give everything we have to this. We won't hold back. All that the Lord says, we will asa. Then my Bible says, and we will be obedient. Well, that's a problem. You see, that's the word shema. And 785 times in, in the New American Standard, that's always translated to here with understanding. That's the accurate word there. Here's the point. In doing, I understand. If I don't do, I do not understand. So what we're calling for everybody in our church to do is to do what Jesus says for us to do. To abide in his word, to do all that he says, like the slaves, so our faith would grow, we'll tune into God. And in doing, we will understand completely what he has for us. So here's what we're saying. The next two-year vision is this, two years and beyond. We want to be a people of the Asa Shema. We want to be a people of the John 8, 31 and 32. We want to be a people of Luke 17 that says, Lord, we want ever-increasing faith. Of Jeremiah 33, 3 that calls and gets amazing answers. We want. So they're going to be the people of the Asa Shema. Everything God has said, we will be obedient to. No, they won't. They are deceiving themselves. To be those people. And what we want to say is, to do that, we need to do that 24-7. Get it? Exodus 24-7, we're calling for 24-7. We want you to be 100% committed to God. 24 months you'll do this, 7 days a week, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 24-7 commitment to God. 24-7, we're completely His. No taking away from that. Total, total wholehearted commitment. And if we do that, we'll understand and experience and know this truth in this life and see the great and mighty things happen. Perfect self-righteousness. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. So what then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written... None is righteous, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. 
In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's both Jews. That's both Jews and Greeks. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and so that the whole world will be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, think in this case, Asa Shema. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, the diakosune to theu, has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are declared righteous by his grace as a gift. That's right. We are declared righteous. We are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What this guy is preaching is pure, unadulterated works righteousness. He's not preaching a gift. He's preaching an adventurous life that you earn by your obedience. This is a false gospel. This is this is the Galatian heresy retooled for the 21st century. The righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier, the one who declares righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. So what then becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is declared righteous by faith apart from works of the law. We are declared righteous by belief, by faith, by trust, apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is the one who will declare righteous the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Well, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. So then what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work... 
but believes in him who declares righteous, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Scriptures make it so clear. If you really think that you can earn something by, from God by your obedience, good luck. Because you have no idea what the law really demands of you. You are under a curse, according to the book of Galatians. You are under a curse, for cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Not just for two years, but forever. You can be justified by the law if you keep it perfectly from the moment you're conceived until the moment you draw your last breath. Good luck. We're going to ask everybody here to commit in four areas for the next 24 months to the things we want you to do. And when you do, you'll have a testimony and a story to tell. And I tell. A story you get to tell about what God is doing with you in your life. The and I tell. You tell everybody about what God... It's all about you. Not about Christ. It's about you. All the boasting is in the great things that you've earned from God by your obedience. Amazing experiences. So first of all, I... I is intentional intimacy. So it spells I-T-E-L. I is intentional intimacy. For the next 24 months, I want you to commit to be in the Word of God seven days a week, every single day. In other words, I want you to have a quality, intentional time getting alone with the Lord, open up His Word and reading it and saying, God, show me things. Teach me. You do that seven days a week. No more five days a week. No three days a week. Not when you have time. It becomes something you choose to do, to have intimacy with God, to really experience him. And then you pray a prayer and say, God, how are you going to bless me today? And So you're going to make people commit to do this for 24 months, and then you're going to turn them into liars. Because they won't. Who can I show love to? And then you jot down things that God is telling you, and you jot down how God has answered your prayers. I'm going to challenge you to do that every single day. Now, I want to tell you, I, I, I have found that, that if we are consistent with this, our intimacy with God and knowledge will grow, but our intimacy grows at an incredible level. Uh, I know this is going to sound like bragging, but i got to tell you, a few years ago, I decided no more missing my time with God. I was a five-day-a-week person in quiet time, and, and, I, and now that I do all seven, it has changed everything. Mm, As a matter yeah. of fact... So are you a three-er, a four-er, or a fiver, sixer, or seven-er? Because, uh, you know, God's not going to bless you really the way he wants to bless you unless you're a seven-day-a-week guy or girl. Today was my 3,333rd straight day of meeting with God without missing a day. And... um. As someone who's done that, I got to tell you, it's changed everything. I am so much closer to him. And I know without it, I wouldn't be. Everybody here. You know, actually, I'm going to challenge that. No, you're really not closer to him. Because you don't trust him. You trust yourself and your self-righteousness, your surrender, your obedience. You really don't actually trust God. You don't believe him. Because salvation is a gift Everything that God gives us, he gives us out of his kindness, mercy, and grace. And you're trying to make it a wage that you earn by your surrender and your obedience. You are not closer to God. You are farther away from him than you've ever been. 
knows if you want a great relationship, you need quality time, right? This is about having quality time to have a great relationship. Now, I got to tell you also that in the early days, it wasn't easy. The first hundred days, there were days that were hard, and I wasn't sure I wanted to do it. But when I did it and kept doing it, it's, my heart started to change. There were other days that were hard. Day 666 was a tough day to do. Okay, I'm going to teach on the last day so you get that joke. Um, but, but you know what? This really is true. Right around day 700, I never had a day like that again. All of a sudden, I, it, it just... I want to make it clear. I think it's a great idea to read your Bible every day. Don't keep track. Don't read your Bible every day because you think that by doing it, you earn something from God. Instead, remember the words of Jesus. It is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Don't go to Scripture expecting that because you've spent X amount of time in Scripture that you've earned a particular blessing from Him. That turns it into a work. When you open your Bible, open it with the idea that it's like eating a meal. That God opens His hand and He gives you a meal. And your soul needs this food every bit as much as your body needs eggs and steak and milk and a salad. Open your Bible with the expectation that you are going to sit there and receive it as a nourishing gift. And don't keep track. Do it today, do it tomorrow, do it the next day. You eat every day, feast and nourish your soul and your faith on God's word, knowing that by doing so, you strengthen your faith, you feed it the way you feed your body. Like, I can't even imagine. There's nothing, nothing better in my day than my time with the Lord. Nothing more important nothing more intimate. I, it's one of the greatest joys of my life. Every single day I grab my coffee and I get with the Lord and we talk and share and, and, and it's just taking me to a whole new level with God. And I want to say that you and I need to commit to that every single day, seven days a week. Now I know there's some of you saying, well, what if I make the commitment and miss a day? Well, the answer is obvious. You go straight to hell. <laughs> That's not true, is it? But you know what? Why do we go, oh, I can't do it when the Bible says I can do all things through, strengthen, uh, through Christ who strengthens me? So if anyone's going, oh, I can't, well, then what kind of a Christian are you? Shouldn't you be able to do all things through Christ who strengthens you? Do you think seven days a week is so hard that you can't do it? I, I mean, what if you decide I'm going to up my level of commitment and up my intimacy with him? And if you miss a day, just jump right back in. But over the next two years, I'm going to challenge you to be with the Lord every single day. And if you need help with that, we have tools to help you. But make sure you read scripture. Make sure you tune into God. Then pray that prayer. God, how are you going to bless me? And who can I show your love to? Now, we want everyone in the church to do that prayer. Here's why. If everybody here does that, you're going to experience God's blessings and you're going to bless others. Uh, a bunch of us have already been praying that. 
if you do that, you will experience God's blessing. You earn them as a wage, and then you can bless others with the excess of your wages that you've earned from God. I'm about to uh, internally combust here if I listen to another minute of the sermon. So my question is, what did they do with Jesus? Where's the cross? Where's salvation by grace alone through faith alone? Where's the gift of the gospel? Where's the gift of faith? Where's the gift of justification? It's all gone. They've gone back to Exodus 24-7 and have picked out Asa Shema. All that we have heard, we will obey. Perfect self-righteousness. Not the righteousness of Christ. Not the righteousness of God. Not salvation by grace, but salvation by works. So I just have a question. Did they really get this vision from God? No, they didn't, because all of this teaching, all of this busy doing, all of this self-righteousness doesn't come from God. It comes from their own dreams and delusions and their false understanding of God's word and their lack of faith and trust in Christ for the free forgiveness of their sins. This undoes the gospel and makes them the center of the universe. Look at what I earned from God by my obedience. Because of my commitment to Asa Shema. This is not the gospel. This is not from God. This is a distortion. This is the Galatian heresy updated for the 21st century. And the Apostle Paul, writing to the Galatians, said... Even if we, or an angel from heaven, or a vision-casting pastor, he didn't say that, but I'm putting it in because it applies. Even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel other than the one already preached, as defined by 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 7. Even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel other than the one already preached, let him be damned. In case I wasn't clear, let me say it again. Anyone preaches to you a gospel other than the one already you already received, let him be damned. Anathema. Let the curse fall. This all has a, a, a sense of some kind of religiosity, moral self-improvement. But it's all about earning from God a wage based upon your obedience, not the obedience of Christ. It's a different gospel. It's a different religion. It's a false gospel, false God, false religion, with a false understanding of law and gospel. This vision did not come from God. It may have come burbled up from within their own mind. It may have been taught to them by a demon. But the one place I can speak with certainty that it didn't come from was the heart, mind, and throne of God. Pray for the folks there at Crossroads. For the next two years, they are going to chase their own self-righteous tail. And at the end of it, they'll be twice the sons and daughters of hell that they already are.
pray that God grants them repentance from this false doctrine and ask it in Jesus' name. We're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. We truly depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions to keep doing what we're doing. You can support us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see the two friendly yellow buttons. Click on one of them and support this important radio outreach so that we can reach people with the gospel and refute the false doctrine that's being spewed from so many pulpits across the country and the world. And thank you for your support. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. You can email email me my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious penal substitutionary death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>